John chapter 12. We are continuing in our series, The Christ of Christmas. And as we bring it to a close today, this last day of classes for the fall semester, I hear you. We are going to discuss the fact that the Christ of Christmas cannot be ignored. You cannot ignore him. People try, but they can't. John chapter 12. This is one of those, this is one of those passages that ought to be framed someplace. This is a rare occurrence. This is one of those times when the enemies of Jesus Christ become very transparent and admit failure. Ought to be made into a neon sign, don't you think? And put on top of the highest building in the nation and blink for everyone to see. John chapter 12, I will begin reading at verse 12 and read down through verse 19. And in honor of the word of God, would you stand with me, please? John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Now here it comes, verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. You are not doing any good. Look, the world, the whole world has gone out after him. It is a fact that you cannot ignore him. You can love him. You can hate him. You can curse him to his face or you can praise him. You can clench a fist and shake it at him or you can bow your knee in humble submission to him. You can rebel against him. You can obey him. You can receive him. You can reject him. You can love him or hate him. But you can't ignore him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this penetrating passage. I pray that it will strike our hearts in a way that will cause our lives to be changed. Thank you that the Christ of Christmas is a Christ whom we cannot ignore. May that thought ring loud and clear this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last night, my dear wife and I had a tremendous privilege, great opportunity to make our way down to Knott's Berry Farm, known this time of year as Knott's Mary Farm. And I had the privilege of speaking at a Christmas banquet down there with about 120 college students. And during that time, I challenged them to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. I held him up high as the one who claimed to be God, because he did. In John 8:58, he took God's name, I am, and applied it to himself, so much so that the Jews who were there tried to kill him on the spot. 
And at the end of the message, I challenged them to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. And four people committed their lives to Jesus Christ last night at Knott's Berry Farm. You know what thought haunted me on the way home? I had challenged them to commit their lives to a carpenter's son who lived 2,000 years ago and died the most humiliating death ever conceived in the mind of men. And I had the audacity, the presumption, the boldness to lift him up high as Almighty God and challenge them to commit their lives to him and he alone. You know what thought haunted me? What if I was wrong? What if he isn't who he claimed to be? What if he perpetrated on the human race the greatest deception ever known to man? And what if last night in front of 120 people I perpetuated that deception? What if I am wrong? Eighteen years ago, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. What if I made a mistake? Why Him? Of all the religious leaders who have ever lived, how do I know I picked the right one? How do I know? Sobering thought, isn't it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, If Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, and of all men, we are the most miserable and the most to be pitied. What if I am in that category? A man whose faith is worthless, a man who is still in his sins, and a man of all men, the most to be pitied and the most miserable. I have challenged many people who are Christians with this question why Jesus why not somebody else why not Buddha why aren't you a Mormon why aren't you a follower of Sun Young Moon or Rajanish why aren't you a Jehovah's Witness how do you know you made the right choice how do you know you didn't blow it and make a mistake. And the stock answer I always get in response to that question is, I committed my life to Jesus Christ on the basis of what? Faith. Faith. You say that to a cynic, you say that to a critic, they will laugh you out of the room. Faith? Every Mormon I ever met is a Mormon by faith. Every Jehovah's Witness to whom I have ever shared my faith is a Jehovah's Witness by faith. Every Harry Carey who ever pinned a carnation on me at LAX is a Harry Carey by faith. Faith. I mean, that sounds nice, but it just doesn't cut it. What if my faith is wrong? What if your faith is wrong? I'm not into taking risks. I'm not into gambling. I often say that I only enter into a contest that I know I will win. 
And I'm not about to accept anything on the basis of faith. If by faith you mean a blind leap in the dark. If by faith you mean you were at a camp, you heard a charismatic speaker who gave you a goose bump, and on the basis of that, you came forward or signed a card or raised a hand or lit a little deal and floated it across the lake or whatever you did. If it was a blind leap in the dark, it doesn't. Cut it, right? Let me tell you something about me, all right? I grew up, this will be ancient history to some of you, but I grew up during a very turbulent time in our nation's history. Some of you have heard this. I remember watching on TV during the time that we were embroiled in this nation in the Cuban Missile Crisis and our President Kennedy was trying to explain to the nation what was going on and the bottom line is we were on the brink of World War III. I can remember in sixth grade, my teacher coming into the classroom, bursting into tears. I went up to her and I said, what's wrong? And she said, our president was just assassinated. Streets of Dallas, Texas, shot down by a sniper in cold blood. I can remember watching on TV, live TV, when his brother, Robert Kennedy, had just won an election 15 minutes from my home. And he was being interviewed. And after he stepped off of the platform a man by the name of Sirhan Sirhan at point blank range pulled a 22 caliber pistol and killed him I watched it happen I can remember very vividly the guru of the drug culture Timothy Leary and LSD spreading across the nation I can remember the the nation exploding with the free love movement in Griffith Park turned into a sex orgy I can remember the Vietnam War and I can even remember receiving my first draft card and the sensation that went through me as I realized I might be drafted and forced to fight in a war that I didn't even know if I believed in. I can remember the Beatles coming along and capturing with their music the turbulence of the age and Beatlemania sweeping the nation. And I even saw the Beatles live in concert at the Hollywood Bowl when I was in junior high school. In the midst of all of that, my own family broke up. My dad moved out. You've heard that story. So the whole world was crumbling. And I was at a very impressionable age. I was in 9th and 10th and 11th grade when all of that was taking place. Suicide was skyrocketing in terms of statistics among people my age. College students were burning down their campuses. They didn't know what they were going to build in its place, but they knew they could build something better. And Kent State erupted and four college students were shot down in cold blood by the National Guard. It was quite a time to live. And I can remember as my world began to crumble, I needed something to hold on to, and suicide became a very real option in my life. It was something I considered many times. But the thing that scared me about suicide is that you only do it once. You can't change your mind. Kind of a drastic step. And so before I take that step, I want to make sure that there is no other answer. And so I began to search. I thought that maybe the answer was in religion. Maybe there is a God out there after all. I have enough common sense to realize that everything I see had to come from someplace. And so I began to read. And I read the writings of every religious reader I could, religious writer I could find. I wasn't about to commit my life to anything on the basis of pure faith, if by faith you mean a blind leap. I needed substance to it. And as I came to the Bible and as I encountered a man by the name of Jesus Christ, there was something about him that paralyzed me. There was something about him that froze me. There was something about him I could not ignore and I could not deny. There was something about him that set him apart from every other religious leader who ever lived. You know what it was? Simply this. He is provable. 
I could prove Jesus. I couldn't prove Mohammed. I couldn't prove Confucius. They had a lot of nice ideas. But there was something about Jesus Christ that was provable. For me, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. For me, faith is the assessment of solid, verifiable evidence and on the basis of the facts, committing my life to them. And so it is verifiable and it is testable and Jesus Christ passed the test. Now, I've had people say, you can't prove this thing. You can only accept it on the basis of faith. I don't agree. In Acts chapter 17, I read these words. Acts chapter 17. Verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, listen, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Explaining and giving evidence, it is testable. Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 24, we read these words. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence. Confidence. The guys in sermon prep have asked me, where does confidence in preaching come from? Where do you get conviction? Well, here it is. Since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice for this, talking about the resurrection, this has not been done in a corner. Festus, check it out. It was done openly. It was done publicly. You can verify it. It isn't a blind leap. It happened in full public view. Answer it. The tomb is empty. And therefore, Paul spoke with confidence. Absolutely certain. Totally persuaded that the message he was proclaiming was the message of truth. In Acts chapter 1. One more example. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account that I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs it is provable Jesus Christ is testable he is verifiable and therefore he cannot be ignored And so it was a sigh of relief and a great comfort to my heart last night as I drove home from Knott's Berry Farm to know that the four people who committed their lives to Christ last night did not make a mistake and were not led astray by me. They heard the message that is truth and committed their lives to it. What is it that Jesus did to prove himself to me? What is it about him that cannot be ignored? Well, there are several lines of reasoning that I could use this morning, but I only have time for two. Each of these two is absolutely conclusive in and of themselves. It is unanswerable in terms of objection. It is an open and closed case. There is no refutation that can be given. It is solid. And it stands any test. 
The first line of reasoning that I will use is the fact of fulfilled messianic prophecy. The fact of fulfilled messianic prophecy. Did you know that in the Old Testament, referring to the first coming of Jesus Christ, there are well over 300 specific prophecies detailed concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ, every one of which must be fulfilled, or you can write Jesus Christ off as a fraud. Over 300 of them. God did not leave it up to a blind leap. He set it up in such a way that it is verifiable. He dared to take a risk. He dared to go out on a limb. He specified over 300 specific facts about the coming of Christ, every one of which had to be fulfilled. Now, fulfilled prophecy establishes three things. Number one, the fact of fulfilled prophecy establishes the fact that God does exist. Because how else would anyone know the future before it takes place? God said in Isaiah 46 verse 9, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Fulfilled prophecy establishes the fact of God. Secondly, it authenticates the uniqueness of Jesus Christ because no one else fulfilled any of these 300 prophecies, only Him. So He is unique. And thirdly, it proves that the Bible is the Word of God because in Deuteronomy 18, God said, You will know my voice when you hear it. My prophets speak with 100% accuracy. They bat a thousand. If they miss one, you can kill them. One and capital punishment is to be executed. We have over 350, and every one came to pass. It is a fact that the Old Testament was completed around the year 450 B.C., 450 years before Christ was ever born. It is a fact that the Old Testament was written over a 1,500-year period of time and contained over 300 specific prophecies uttered by a variety of different authors over that great time span. And it is a fact that every single one without exception was completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now I have to be honest with you, I want to be credible. So let me point out that the critics do have an explanation for it. They do. There is a way around fulfilled prophecy. And the best the critics can come up with is this. Jesus Christ was very slick. A mastermind. And he got hold of the Old Testament, read it, and cataloged every prophecy listed. And after having a list of the prophecies, manipulated the events in his life so as to make it appear that he fulfilled them. That is the best the critic can come up with. Knowing the prophecies in advance, he manipulated events so as to make it appear that he fulfilled them. Nice try problem. It was predicted that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Question. How did Jesus Christ manipulate that? It was predicted in Genesis 3.15 and in Isaiah 7.14 that he would be born of a virgin. Medical, physical impossibility. Question. How did he manipulate that? 
It was predicted in Isaiah 11.1 that he would be of the family line of Jesse. How did he manipulate that? Or did you choose the family in which you were born? It was predicted in Isaiah 7.14 that his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Question. How did he manipulate that? His own name. My name is Dewey. You know I didn't choose that. <laughs> it was predicted in Psalm 22 verse 16 that he would, be di- he would die a death of crucifixion. How did he manipulate that? It was predicted in Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8 the way in which the people would react during the crucifixion. Let me read it to you. Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. Psalm 22 verse 7, all who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. How did he manipulate that? Or was he dictating from the cross their responses? It was predicted in Psalm 22 verse 18 that they would gamble for his clothing. How did he manipulate that one? It was predicted in Psalm 34 verse 20 that not one bone would be broken. Interesting, he was crucified between two people. Both of them had legs shattered, but not one bone of his was broken. How did he manipulate that? He was unconscious at the time. It was predicted in Isaiah 53 verse 9 he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. How did he manipulate that? And it was predicted in Psalm 16, verse 10, that he would rise from the dead. How did he manipulate that? And to the critic, I would say, nice try. Now, I brought with me a list of 61 specific prophecies, keeping in mind there are over 300 in the Old Testament. I have 61 of them here. The prophecy and then its fulfillment. A man by the name of Peter Stoner wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. He took this list of prophecies and subjected it to the science of mathematical probability. In order to determine the mathematical chance that one man from Adam to the present day, by chance, would fulfill these prophecies. In the Old Testament there are over how many? 300 and on this list I have 61. Peter Stoner took only 8 of them. Only 8 of them. And subjected those 8. The mathematical probability. The eight he selected are as follows. The prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that that money would be thrown in the temple, that he would be silent before his accusers, and that he would die by crucifixion. Those eight. All specifically predicted in the Old Testament. Dr. Stoner writes this, quote, Using the modern science of probability in reference to these eight prophecies, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That is a one followed by 17 zeros. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, let's suppose that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas. They would cover all of the state of Texas two feet deep. 
It's a lot of money. Now mark one of these silver dollars, stir the whole mass thoroughly, two feet deep throughout the entire state of Texas, blindfold, blindfold a man, tell him that he has one pick and can travel anywhere he wants through the entire state, one pick. And the chance that he would pick the right silver dollar is the same chance that one man from Adam to the present day would fulfill just those eight. Not to mention 61, not to mention over 300. Mr. Critic, answer that. Then he took 48 of them. I don't have time to tell you what the 48 were, but he took 48 off of this list. Then he says this, We find the chance that any one man would fulfill 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. That's a one followed by 157 zeros. He writes these words, quote, This is a really large number. And it represents an extremely small chance. Let's try to visualize it. The silver dollar which we have been using is entirely too large. We must select a smaller object. The electron. <laughs> don't ask me to explain it. I don't understand it myself, but it is impressive. The, the electron is about as small as, uh, as an object as we know. It is so small that it will take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th of them laid side by side to make a line single file one inch long. This is for Dennis England. Thinking of you, my friend. If we were going to count the electrons in this line one inch long and counted 250 each minute, if we counted day and night, it would take us 19 million years to count just the one inch line of electrons. If we had a cubic inch of these electrons and we tried to count them, it would take us counting steadily 250 each minute, 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years or 6.9 times 10 to the 21 years. With this introduction, let us go back to our chance in 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Let us suppose we are taking this number of electrons, marking 1, thoroughly stirring it into the whole mass, then blindfolding a man and letting him try to find the right one. What chance would he have? What kind of pile will this number of electrons make? They make an inconceivably large volume, and that's only 48, and we have over 300. Let me say a word about the nature of these prophecies, all right? You won't believe it. How specific and humanly impossible to fulfill they are. I'll give you an example. In Daniel chapter 9, it was predicted that Jesus Christ would present himself to Israel as their Messiah. Did you know that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the date that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and present himself as Messiah to the people, the date was predicted? I don't have time to go through the entire passage. It's rather technical. Let me just give you the tip of the iceberg in working through it, all right? In verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. The word week in Hebrew is the word heptad. It means any group of seven. It could be a week of days as we use the word week, seven days. But in this context, it is a week of years. So every time you read the word week, you're talking about a grouping of seven years. So, there are 70 groups of 7 years, making a total of 490 years, right? 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to make a finish 
of the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when the time starts. The issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 72 weeks, making a grand total of 69 weeks or 483 years. Are you with me? The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given in Nehemiah chapter 2, and the date for that in our reckoning of time is March 14, 445 B.C. That is when the clock starts. The prophet Daniel said that from March 14, 445 B.C., there would be 483 years exactly to the day when Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah. Considering the fact that they operated on a 360-day calendar, and when you consider the fact that we use leap years and a 365-day calendar, and you keep in mind the transition from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., when you work all of that out mathematically, it comes out to a grand total of 173,880 days, dating it from March 14, 445 B.C. Now let me ask you a question. He rode into Jerusalem and one week later was killed. True? If I ask you for the year in which Jesus Christ was killed, what date would you give? What year? Throw some out. Approximately. What year was he killed? 33 A.D., alright. What did you say? 32 A.D.? If you take March 14, 445 B.C. and follow it through 483 years, the date that you would come up with when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah is, April 6th, 32 A.D. Now do you understand why in Luke chapter 19... Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, we read this. When he approached the city, he saw the city and wept over it. This is just after the triumphal entry. Saying, and I never could understand these words. Saying, if you had known in this day... If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you. And then he makes another prediction. But if you had only known in this day, Jesus, in what day? This day, the day predicted by Daniel the prophet, if you had only calculated and known this day, there was only one day that would qualify. And they missed it. Now, how precise do you want the prophecies to be? The very date was predicted. And I can remember attending a Vesper service at a Jewish synagogue and seeing those dear people with all of their sincerity weeping and wailing and crying for the Messiah to come. And I felt like standing up in the midst of that congregation and walking up to one of those dear people with his yarmulke and grabbing him by the shoulders and shaking him and looking him in the eye and saying, He already came! You missed the day! April 6th, 32 A.D. Coincidence? A matter of chance? 
It was predicted in Psalm 22 that he would be crucified. That prediction was made approximately 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Problem. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. Crucifixion did not become a part of the Roman system of jurisprudence until 63 B.C. when it was introduced into Jewish law. It was predicted that he would be crucified when crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. Lucky guess. Did you know that in Psalm 22 verse 14 it was predicted that Christ would die of a broken heart? Psalm 22 verse 14. Let me read it to you. The prediction was made that he would die of a ruptured heart muscle. Psalm 22 and verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within me. We know that that's a reference to the crucifixion because the first verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even his words were predicted. Problem. When a person was crucified, do you know how he died? Suffocated. Suffocated. Because of the tremendous pressure placed upon the chest muscles as the arms are extended to their maximum length. As the body sags under its weight for hour after excruciating hour, the chest muscles begin to weaken. So much so that the victim is able to inhale. He can bring air in but does not have the muscular strength to push the air out. He cannot exhale. Consequently, carbon dioxide begins to build up in the bloodstream, causing cramps that are literally excruciating. And that is why they broke the legs of the two people crucified on either side of him, because it was customary for the victim to push himself up to relieve the pressure so that he could exhale, inhale, and then sag back down. When a person was crucified, he was suffocated. But 700 B.C., the prophet predicted that he would die of a ruptured heart muscle. Dr. Truman Davis, a medical doctor who wrote what is to be compared to an autopsy report of the crucifixion of Christ, made this statement in his book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, quote, Apparently to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance through the fifth interspace between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. You remember the legionnaire doing that? Immediately there came out blood and water. We therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium." End quote. How did David know it 700 years before the fact? Lucky guess? It was predicted in Isaiah 7:14 that he would be born of a virgin. Medical impossibility, virgins do not bear babies, no matter what the National Enquirer says. I even read last week of a baby who was born in an aquarium. He was predicted to be born of a virgin. Now I have to be honest with you, the critics have an answer for that. The word virgin could be translated made girl or young girl as it is translated from Hebrew to English that's true 
You don't have to translate it virgin. You could translate it teenage girl. Here's the problem. The prophet said this, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. When the Messiah is born, you will have a sign. Something unmistakable, something verifiable, something undeniable. A sign. There will be no guesswork involved. Okay, what is the sign? Well, for the sake of argument, let's use the critic's argument and say that that word should be translated teenage girl. It would read this way. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Are you ready? Here it is. The neon light pointing to the Messiah. A teenage girl will be with child. Doesn't make it, does it? What did I read two days ago? That every 20 seconds in this country a teenage girl gives birth to a child? Some sign. The context demands the translation of the word virgin. And so it was that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And Mr. Critic, how do you answer that one? Well, we have the argument before us of fulfilled messianic prophecy. And I think that in light of what I have said, the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 39, have a whole new ring to them now and a whole new significance. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of Me. How do you miss it? How do you miss it? Well, I have three minutes left and one more point. How do I know that Jesus Christ is really who He claimed to be? How did He prove Himself to me? Number one, through fulfilled messianic prophecy. Number two, through the fact of the resurrection. The fact of the resurrection. You have the fact of an empty tomb. You have the fact of the enemies of Christ giving no proof to the contrary. And you have the fact that Jesus Christ appeared over a 40-day period of time to several groups of people in several different settings. And eyewitness accounts verify the fact. Now, I must be honest with you. The critics have an answer for that one. You can get around the resurrection. People would love to leave him in the tomb. And this is the best the critic has come up with. I will give you four very quickly, and you pick the one you like the most in order to disprove the resurrection. Here it is. Number one, the critic will say that somebody stole the body. It was stolen. Question. Who stole it? Three options. The Jews could have stolen the body, but I have a hard time with that because in John chapter 5 verse 18 it says, For this cause therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. The last thing they wanted was a resurrected Christ running around. They're the ones who cried out and screamed, Crucify him. This is exciting stuff, isn't it? So it wasn't the Jews, and there are people who say it was the Romans, but the Romans' cry was, Caesar only, he is God. And then there are some people who say it was the disciples. But at the time this was going on, they were up in an upper room under a table with the doors locked and the lights out, hiding, fearing for their own lives. And if the body was stolen, how do you account for the fact that he appeared over a 40-day period of time, at one time to over 500 people? How do you account for that? Okay, option number two, the women went to the wrong tomb. Which is the classic chauvinistic cheap shot. The women went to the wrong tomb. 
There were only 72 hours between the time he died and the time they visited the tomb. And Peter and John went to the same tomb, so you know it couldn't be the case, right? Not only that, Joseph of Arimathea owned the tomb, and I'm sure he could produce the right one. And all the enemies of Christ had to do was produce the right one and produce the body, and the whole thing would come crumbling down around us. And you still don't get around the fact that he did appear. The appearance of Christ is the real bugaboo in the whole thing. So we have to deal with that. Now, how do you deal with that? Well, option number three, people hallucinated. It wasn't really Christ. It was swamp gas or something, you know. Um, but the problem with that theory is the tomb is empty. All you'd have to do is produce the body and the hallucination theory would be verified. But nobody has produced one. The number of appearances would make it difficult to determine that it was simply hallucination because he appeared at so many different times and was even touched and you don't put your hand or your finger in the nail print of swamp gas. They ate with him. They weren't even expecting him. And Thomas demanded proof. I have to touch him. Well, not many people really believe those three. There is one that is the primary one and I've saved the best for last. Aren't you glad? Most people who deny the resurrection do it on the basis of what has come to be called the swoon theory. Swoon theory. Here it is. Jesus never really died. He fainted. They laid him in the coolness of the tomb and because it was so nice and cool in there over three day period of time, he revived and simply walked out of the tomb and everybody said, he's arisen from the dead. You believe that? After they scourged him, stripped him from the waist up, bent him over, tied his hands to a waist-high post to stretch the skin in his back to its maximum degree, and then took a, a whip with pieces of rock on the end and crashed that thing down upon his back, bursting the back completely open, shredding that thing like a piece of ground round, putting a purple robe on him and like a bandage as the blood coagulated with the fiber, tearing it off like you might a band-aid ripping the wounds open again. After taking two inch long thorns, weaving them into a crown, beating it on his head, after putting a bag on his head and hitting him with rods, after forcing him to carry his own cross, after nailing him there and him hanging there for six excruciating hours on a legionnaire taking his lance and thrusting it into the heart. Do you really believe that after winding him in linen wrappings and laying him in that tomb and sealing the tomb shut, a great stone, as Mark called it, requiring several people to move it. Do you really believe that after all of that incredible blood loss, that Jesus laying there just simply came to, like the incredible Hulk burst out of those funeral wrappings, walked up to that gigantic rock, pushed it out, single-handedly did combat with the best of the Roman guard, beat all of them up, ran on nail-pierced feet into the city of Jerusalem and presented himself alive? Do you believe that? If you believe that, you have more faith than I do. I submit to you that Jesus Christ is alive. You can't ignore that. You can't deny it. Several years ago, the newspaper came out with a headline in big, black, bold print. It said this. I was 13 years old at the time. It made a vivid impact upon me. It said this, big, black, bold print. John Lennon claims 
the Beatles are more popular than Jesus Christ. I was not a Christian, but when I read that, a shiver went up my spine, and I knew he was treading on very, very sacred turf. And the reality is that the tide of public opinion turned against the Beatles, their concerts were boycotted, and John Lennon, who used to be my teenage idol and hero, signed his death warrant. It was six years ago, December 8th, 1980, when John Lennon was making his way up the steps to a plush apartment building in downtown Manhattan, an apartment building called the Dakota. When a man walked up to him, pretending to be a fan, asked for his autograph, turning away from his wife Yoko Ono to face this fan as he reached for the paper and took a pen and began to sign his name, this so-called fan put a gun in his stomach, pulled the trigger and killed him. Cold blood assassination. Last year, I found it on the back page of the LA Times, a two-inch long column. This year, I couldn't even find it. An article that read that on the anniversary of the death of John Lennon, a handful of people gathered outside the Dakota in downtown Manhattan to hold a candlelight vigil in honor of their slain hero. It didn't even make the papers six years later. But this April, 2,000 years later, on one certain Sunday in the month, people around the globe by the millions will stop everything they are doing. Countries at war with one another will call a temporary ceasefire. And people will make their way to their places of worship on Easter Sunday morning in honor of the one who 2,000 years ago was murdered, buried, and rose from the tomb alive. And John, if you can hear me down there, you were wrong. Jesus Christ is alive. And we made the right choice. Do you agree? I agree. And four people who last night at Knott's Mary Farm committed their lives to Christ made the right choice. And there is no smidgen of any doubt in my mind that when I stand here and declare Christ to you, I am declaring to you the truth. You agree? Hallelujah. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, we thank you that the Christ of Christmas is the Christ who cannot be ignored. No matter how he is approached, he stands the test. And we thank you today specifically for the fact of fulfilled prophecy and the fact of the resurrection. And I pray that as we break in a week and make our ways to our homes and our families, that Christmas will be far more than a baby in a manger, but he will be who he ought to be, the almighty Christ who came to bring us salvation from our sin. For he is indeed the one and the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that we know him, Father. And may this message indeed bring joy to the world, and we pray in his name. Amen.